the vaguely cliche, but I think very true way, it's a truism, is that you know, amphibious operations are some of the most complex you can do in a military domain, in a military environment. And as a result, this is where multi-domain operations, you can prove all of it at once. You know, if we say we don't need, to, we can't do amphibious operations because of the A2AD bubble. Well, and that implies the bubble is this hard and fixed thing. And I don't buy that. Hey, welcome back to the MWI Podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI. And a few weeks ago, we published an article examining the role of amphibious operations in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Specifically, the fact that there didn't seem to be much of a role at all, which was somewhat of a surprise given Ukraine's long Black Sea coastline. The challenge is to figure out what we should infer from that fact. Are amphibious operations a thing of the past, or is this an anomaly? One of the authors of that piece was Tim Heck, MWI's deputy editorial director, and about a year and a half ago, before he joined MWI, I had a chance to talk to him about a book he edited on the subject of amphibious operations across the history of warfare. As I've been following the war in Ukraine playing out in all domains and across domains, I found myself really thinking about what we should make of the general lack of amphibious operations and thinking back to that discussion that I had with Tim. So I think it's a really timely opportunity to give listeners a chance to hear it again, and for many of our new listeners, a chance to hear it for the first time. Before we get to it, a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, find it on your favorite podcast app. And second, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Tim Heck. Tim, welcome to the MWI podcast, and thank you so much for making some time so we could uh, so we could chat. Thanks for having me, John. So you are a uh, Marine Corps Reserve officer, and you are the co-editor of a pretty new book along with Brett Friedman, another Marine officer. Uh, the book's called On Contested Shores, uh, The Evolving Role of Amphib- Am- Amphibious Operations in the History of Warfare. Um, so obviously the book is about amphibious operations. Uh, tell me why you decided, you and Brett decided to undertake this project. Uh, it, it came out of a, a research project I was doing. I was trying to write an article on a Soviet landing operation during the Second World War, great patriotic war in their terms, and couldn't find a lot of good English language sources. One of the sources I found was Merrill Bartlett's Assault from the Sea, which came out in the early 1990s, 93 two to 94 somewhere, depending on kind of like which version you pick up. And Naval Institute Press released that. It's based out of their, um, based on articles that had been in proceedings in the previous like 40 or 50 years. And there was one article on the Soviets. And I said, man, there's just nothing out here for my research needs. Um, Trying to do stuff on the Red Army when you don't speak Russian is a little tricky sometimes. But uh, I messaged Brett. I was like, hey, man, do you want to do a book on amphibious operations? Because there's nothing recent out here. Uh, this was before Commandant Berger took over, you know, General Berger, our new commandant, took over. This is before um, NASCA's book on the American Amphibious Way of Warfare came out, which came out last year. Like, I mean, this was a, two years ago, and it was just there was a gap in the scholarship, and Brett said yes, and that's what started the process. I wish I could claim it was tied to the Marine Corps' renovation and amphibious thought on all of this. It was just, you know, kind of one one historian writing to another going, hey man, there's nothing out here. We have to create this. 
So you guys kind of identified this gap. I'm curious, it was published by Marine Corps University Press. When you approached them with the idea, did they immediately recognize, hey, there is this gap and this is a great project? Or did you have to kind of sell them on it? Oh, oh no, there was there was very little selling of, of this to MCU Press. Um, Angela Anderson, the, the director there, who's fantastic, she had seen our call for papers go out or our call for chapters. Um, but we, when we started the project, we didn't have a publisher in mind. Brett and I both wear Marine Corps green. We didn't want this to be a book by Marines about Marines for Marines. Um, you know, we, we, we didn't want to sit around and collectively ooh and ah at Tarawa and Iwo Jima and, and talk about the glory days. Uh, you know, this isn't a Bruce Springsteen song. We, we wanted kind of a more academic volume of that. And so she knew it was out there. She knew that somebody was working on it. And she knew that Brett and I were working on it because it's, you know, again, the, the military publishing world is small enough and, and the Marine Corps is, is even smaller. Um, and I'll allow your army audience to, to, to make the joke about literate Marines is an even smaller world, but she knew it was coming. And so when we reached out to her and said, Hey, we have this project. She was on board uh, almost immediately. And I think I think the delay was her hitting send as opposed to to us proposing. Good. Um, so you said you didn't want it to be a book kind of by Marines for Marines, and and you know the 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 kind of breadth of the contributors that you attracted to the project proves that it isn't. It's not just by Marines, but on the other side of that equation, about it not being just for Marines, amphibious operations are you know with a few obviously very notable examples like D Day. Um, they're kind of a Marine Corps specialty, you know, part of the Marines bread and butter, how, um, how important and was it to you that you did, you know, diversify your audience just the way, the way that you diversified the contributor base, but then also how did you go about trying to do that? So I think there, there's two parts of that question. And the first part is, you know, kind of what did, how do we frame what we wanted to create, right? It was the, what was the broad vision? And, and, you know, I told you what it wasn't, what we didn't want. What we did want was something that was academic. We wanted something that was broad um, and kind of looking around, you know, what's going on in the world, right? The, the U.S. Marine Corps is not the only Marine Corps in the world. We are the largest. We are the ones kind of with the, you know, and maybe this is cultural myopic, you know, culturally myopic just because I am a Marine. But, you know, we've got the story tradition. We've got the legacy and all of that. But there are a lot of other folks out there doing interesting amphibious things. And as we started preparing our introductory chapters, we started framing things. We found the Royal United Services Institute in Australia had produced, had hosted a conference in 2010, 2011 and published their minutes about amphibious operations, right? When you think of amphibious operations and the Aussies, you think of Gallipoli and there's a Gallipoli chapter in the book, but we said, we're not the only ones looking at this, you know, as U S army Pacific, it starts to, you know, looks to the Pacific. How are you going to get there? How are you going to get across the beach? How are you going to get to the land fight? Well, you're going to have to go over the water. And so we saw in framing the concept of the book, that would then drive our quest for submissions. And that would also drive our quest, you know, our subsequent quest for readers. Um, and this is again, where MCU press stepped in and helped out and, said, hey, have you thought about contacting this professional military education institution or this one or that one? And that helped spread the word. So, you know, the book is very clearly um, 
about the history of amphibious operations. It's in the title. You see that in, in many of the chapters. It's Each chapter essentially presents a case study. The earliest ones are from, I believe, 16th century and all the way up through the 20th century. Um, but the the last several chapters are are things like uh, you know the role of, of amphibious operations in multi-domain operations, which is a very current thing. Uh, you've got the future is amphibious is the name of one chapter. Naval strategy in the future of amphibious operations. So, in a sense, it it almost feels like the book looks at history, but then kind of concludes by informing a, a view forward, some a bit of kind of horizon gazing, so to speak. What's the value of those historical case studies over over you know more than four centuries um, in terms of kind of influencing the way and refining the way we think about amphibious operations today and and tomorrow? So one of the things that Brett and I wanted to do with this book was not just focus on the amphibious assault. Right, there are five types of amphibious operations. Assault is the one that gets the press, and even Merritt Bartlett's book is entitled "Assault from the Sea." So when we were framing the book, when we were, were getting a sense of, of what we wanted to do, we wanted to make sure that we were including these other examples. And if we, we wrote a book entirely about the landing at, at, at Normandy or the landing at D-Day, we wouldn't get that. What are, the, what are the five amphibious operations? So it's assault, withdrawal, a raid, a demonstration, and then the generic catch-all phrase of other, which I think is kind of like <laughs> the Article 92 of, of amphibious operations. But that's when you think about things like Operation Sea Angel, where, where the, the Marines and the Navy in, in Bangladesh in the 1990s, after a, a, a cyclone went through, went and provided humanitarian aid, or a non-combatant evacuation operation, a NEO, that a is going to pull um, you know, American citizens out of, I'm trying to think of the most recent ones, but they did it in Africa in the 90s all the time. They did it in, in Lebanon multiple times. Um, that's kind okay. of the other category. Okay. But we, we wanted the historical case studies because... You know, I mean, you called it horizon gazing. We also didn't want this just to be a, a thought exercise. Um, you, you can, you know, kind of some, one of the, you can sit and, and prognosticate and claim and, and attempt to be a prophet about all of this, but we wanted this book to be applicable and, and, and useful. And so, you know, say you're a staff officer at Army Pacific or you're, you know, you're an Aussie naval captain or, or you know, a, a, a Japanese company commander. And you're looking at how do we engage in the Pacific? How are we going to project power? How are we going to get people out of there? And so we said, well, you know, historical case studies is the way to do this. And that's how we were able to, I mean, that, that's that's how we picked the chapters. And some of also is, you know, where we went fishing for contributors, right? We used HWAR and we used the Journal for Military History to publish, or the Society for Military History to publish it. Um, we used our Twitter feeds, and right? And so the, that's where we got the, the wide range. And you know, Brett, Brett's very much a futures oriented sort of thinker. I'm a little bit more historical. Um, so Brett was able to do a lot of that pulling and a lot of knowing who to ask and who we should be talking to and who might be able to introduce us to this person that can introduce us to that person. And, and that's how that, that played out. Okay. So there are some chapters on, um, on ones that even people who are not say, say if we, you know, of our listeners who are in the army and maybe less familiar with amphibious operations, of course, they're going to know some of these, but can you give an example of maybe one of the lesser known sort of case studies uh, that you think is particularly illuminating or informative? Um, and for, you know, again, for people who are coming to this with kind of a blank slate. You know, every time I go through this book, 
whether it was when I was editing it, when we were doing the proofs, when we were distributing it, a different example popped up for a different reason. Um, you know, if I'm a if I'm a young platoon commander again, you know, a book like, or a chapter like John Salt on Forty Seven Commando at Normandy is going to provide me a ton of useful resources. If I'm a staff officer and I'm thinking about how do I move a unit from A to B, or how do I get a unit out of trouble, I'm going to look at you know Greg Leitke's chapter on the Germans pulling themselves and their allies out of the East as the, as the Soviets advanced. Um, you, know, you mentioned earlier multi-domain operations. We've got two chapters in there about that. Uh, a practical chapter from uh, Jim Greer about the Germans' invasion of Norway in, 19, in the 1940s. And then you've got a much more theoretical chapter um, by Keith Dixon of, of Joint Forces Staff College. So that's a roundabout way of saying all of them are great and illuminating, but I think it a lot of it depends on where you sit and what you're looking for. And every time I go back through, you know, am I looking at it from 24-year-old me perspective? Am I looking at it from mid to senior grade field grade perspective? Am I looking at it from a, you know, from a staff officer at a combatant staff or at a battalion or, 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 at a, or you know, a special operations background? What is it? And I'm going to pull something out of each chapter. And I think that's been, of the feedback we've received so far, that's been pretty pretty rewarding to hear that other folks are doing that too and saying, oh, I wouldn't have thought that, you know, this chapter on the Delaware River campaign of 1777 was going to be applicable. But when I think about expeditionary advanced base operations, I can take that chapter and merge it with Walker's chapter at the end of the book. And oh, suddenly I have a new idea about how to defend against an amphibious operation. So I'm not going to ask you uh, if you have a favorite chapter, but I will say, I'll I'll phrase it this way. Um, One of my favorite parts of my job as an editor and, and far and away, one of the most rewarding parts of it is just how, how much exposure I get to different ideas and subjects I'm less familiar with and how much I learned through the process of uh, working with authors to, you know, kind of refine their work. Was there an example of one of these case studies that didn't really register on your radar before and, and that you really kind of enjoyed uh, sort of from that perspective? I think it was, it was Keith Dixon's chapter on MDO. Um, MDO, definitely an army concept that's floating around the Marine Corps. I mean, we're kind of tangentially aware that that's going on out there, but to have, you know, somebody who's teaching it at the joint forces staff college, who's, who's thinking about it and engaging in it every day and going, ah, and now I can practically apply it was, was pretty enlightening. Um, you know, on that note, multi-domain operations is, um, you know, it's, it's not doctrine yet. It's still a concept and it is still to some degree, although certainly not to the point it was, I think a few years ago, um, kind of all things to all people. It's, it's a bit nebulous. And when, you know, still, I think, um, there are some people that when you think about multi-domain operations, we think about, you know, the slide that, that Tradoc, uh, came up with a few years ago that, that, you know, that shows kind of, or depicts a, uh, a battlefield that has land, air and sea domains, space and cyber domains, and kind of kind of shows, you know, fires just going from one domain to another and impacting things in, in these other, other domains. Given that it is still conceptual, um, you know, how do you see, how do amphibious operations fit into that concept? 
Professor Dixon talks about it uh, in his chapter on page 323. He says, in the face of these challenges, the joint force must be able to accomplish three essential operational tasks. Apply combat power to gain and maintain operational access, move forces and logistics over long distances, and maneuver combat power at the proper place and time. And he goes on and he says, you know, no single service can claim to do that. The Marine Corps can claim to do all of these things, right? The Marine Air Ground Task Force concept. We can do all of this, you know. But as the joke goes, Marine stands for my blank rides in Navy equipment. Sir, um, <laughs> I need the Navy to get me there. I need Cyber Command to to deaden, to silence, to do whatever Cyber Command does beyond tell me I, I have to use Internet Explorer. Um, I need them to do their thing. I need Space Force to go out and, and make sure that I have both intelligence coming from the satellites, but that my GPS signal isn't jammed and that it's encrypted properly. And I, you know, I need all of these things. And so the vaguely cliche, but I think very true way, uh, very, very, it's a, it's a truism is that, you know, amphibious operations are some of the most complex you can do in a military domain or in a, in a, in a military environment. And as a result, this is where multi-domain operations, you can prove all of it at once. You know, I have to get my forces from, the west coast of the United States to the South China Sea. So there's my logistics. I have to then get them off the boat in an appropriate manner and get them to the right place. Well, there's projecting combat power at a proper place in time. You know, it's there's a lot that is involved in planning and executing an amphibious operation, whether it's an assault or a withdrawal or, or you know, even just a demonstration. So to have a large joint framework that it applies to, I think is pretty helpful. So uh, a few years ago, we published, MWI published uh, an article uh, that was really kind of a list. Uh, it was written by one of our senior fellows, Matt Cavanaugh, and it was a list of kind of, you know, strategic debates or just debates that we should be having uh, as, a, as an army, as a joint force. Uh, and one of, one of those items, really the one that I think got the most attention was whether or not there's any place for airborne operations in the future of conflict. Uh, and it generated a lot of debate. There were people, you know, on both sides of it, but the argument that there isn't is essentially, look, you know, in a, in a, in a large scale combat operations, uh, scenario against a peer near peer adversary, the enemy air defenses are going to be, uh, you know, so sophisticated that we're not going to have paratroopers jumping out of C-130s or, or whatever other aircraft into combat. Um, now again, it's an open debate, uh, and you know I don't want to make the mistake of just because D-Day, uh, the D-Day invasions had both an airborne component and an amphibious component of lumping these together. But I'm, I'm really just wondering if there's a parallel debate uh, in the Marine Corps uh, about whether or not uh, amphibious operations are 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 perhaps a thing of the past, uh, or whether or not you know there is this real belief that this is going to be a necessary component or at least a likely component of future. Uh, future operations within sort of a large-scale combat uh, uh, context? I think that there is the debate, right? There's, And it, it might not be a debate about whether or not we're going to have to go over, around, or through a beach in some ways. I think that's, I think that's probably pretty accepted. Um, I, I'm, I'm not in some of those rooms at the Pentagon. I'm not in any of those rooms at the Pentagon, so I couldn't tell you officially, but I think... You know, as you sit and project what is the U.S. going to have to do in the event of a peer or near peer fight, we're going to have to go over the sea in some way. 
So that means moving from sea to land. Add in the complexities of climate change. Add in the complexities uh, of access, partnerships of allies. I think there are... um, I don't think the debate is there. I think the debate is more how. Because if we were to cede, you know, if we say we don't need, to, we can't do amphibious operations because of the A2AD bubble, one that implies the bubble is this hard and fixed thing. And I don't buy that. I buy that the bubble is effective. I buy that, you know, it's, it's you know, to think of, of, of targeting from, you know, a TACP, a JTAC world, you know, I know what the, I know what your missile launcher says it can do. I know thus where I need to keep my aircraft in the sky and, you know, separate it by time and space and, and altitude and, and, and these things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be capable of doing it, especially once I start degrading you. And thinking back to when, when we were kids, when I was a child, certainly, and I think you know, we're probably about the same age, right? Watching Desert Storm on the nightly news, right? And what is a, what would a Baghdad have like the biggest A2AD bubble there was? Right, but yet the, bo- the the bombers, the missiles, the fighters got through. Why? Because a couple of Apache helicopters went in and punched out some power stations. Right, like the A2D bubble exists in a perfectly functioning world, and I think to seed to say, well, you know, there's this silkworm missile out there and it's going to sink all of our ships is to is to walk away from a solvable problem. It's not going to be an easy problem to solve, but it's a solvable problem. Um, okay, well, how do I jam, defeat, counteract that silkworm missile? And, and the Marine Corps is looking at it, in, you know, in a variety of ways. One of the one of the big things that has come out is that the Chinese are looking at Guadalcanal, and we're looking at Guadalcanal. It is the you know the first major battle of the Second World War from the Marine Corps' perspective, um, and it's an amphibious operation. It is a landing on an unimposed beach. Why? Why do I have to go at Juno Gold, Utah? You know, why do I have to do that beach landing when I could do an when I can do, you know, a Guadalcanal and land where you aren't? And whether that means I'm getting off of little tiny ships, the British tried an experiment called Black Swan um, in the past decade or so, and, and it was how do they project the Royal Marines ashore? The Marine Corps is looking at lighter amphibious warships. Um, I think that's the term for it. I don't, don't, not 100% sure what it's called, but one of the things they're looking at is this Aussie design. Well, you know, not everything has to be the Bonhomme Richard. Not everything has to be the USS Wasp. They don't have to be these massive command and control ships to do an amphibious operation. Think to your Normandies, your Iwo Jima's, right? Tons of these little LCTs and, and Amtraks and all of this are pushing Marines and soldiers onto the beaches. Um, and the U S has gotten away from that. We've gone bigger, but now there's kind of this decentralized push. And I think some of it's driven by that A to AD bubble concept, you know, that, that I sink the wasp right recently, what in the last six months, there was the fire in the San Diego port that knocked out American amphibious capabilities in a significant and meaningful way. That's, that's doable because I have, one ship that I've tied a lot of capabilities into. But if I've dispersed that and disaggregated it, I might not have the same combat power and I might take, you know, significantly higher losses percentage wise, but I'm still going to be able to project. And so I think if we were to seed 
the A2AD bubble, you know, seed, whatever we're looking at, whatever beach we're looking at, whatever island, hint, hint, cough, cough, right, to a near-peer competitor, whether that's in the Baltic or the South China Sea, because there's this bubble, right, the Kaliningrad Oblast bubble is, is kind of one that gets talked about a lot in, in a NATO context. We're not, we're not being creative. Um, you know, the, the, the logistics buildup of OIF-1, right? So that's March of 2003, right? The, the coalition of the willing pushes north up into Iraq. 18 months prior, two MUs came together off the coast of Pakistan and pushed helicopters in through Pakistan and landed in Kandahar airfield. Well, you know, intelligence operatives and special forces came in from another way. That, I think, is probably much more realistic. A muse a lot harder of a target to hit than a port city in, you know, in Kuwait or Saudi Arabia. And so sure. to deny the capability that could give you forcible access, forcible entry, is counterproductive. You know, I, I think to, the, the fundamental answer to your question is there is a debate. I think the debate is more around how we get around it, how we address it, as opposed to is this worth addressing at all? So then sort of narrowing it down even a little bit further and, and playing off of something that you said when you talked about the fire uh, on the ship in the port in San Diego and and what uh, threat to this capability it was, you know, it is essentially, it sort of mirrors this broader debate about between, you know, the few expensive and exquisite platforms and the the many cheap and comparatively or comparatively unsophisticated platforms institutionally, do you think the Marine Corps sees one or the other of those as sort of key in terms of their hardware development for projecting power from, from sea to shore? Ooh, I got to be careful on this one. Um, I know it said at the beginning of every podcast, but I do not reflect the official views of the Department of State, the United States Navy, or the United States Marine Corps. Um, I think you have seen, I think, I'm an artilleryman, so let's talk about fires. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna touch the the big Marine Corps procurement project, the F-35, because I don't I don't have the background there. But and I wish this is where I wish I mean I wish Brett was on the call so you had a different perspective on it on everything too. But Brett was part of the test process for the 120 millimeter expeditionary fire support system, which was this rifled mortar we were bringing into the artillery regiments um, to provide a different type of fire support and firepower for the landing teams. And really it was designed to go on the Muse because it took up less space than the, the triple seven 155 millimeter howitzers. Mm -hmm. So they were divided, you know, they were looking at this and the Marine Corps spent a lot of money and a lot of time buying this EFSS and testing this EFSS. And within less than a decade, they said, Nope, we're good. Moving on. Um, there are procurements that go well. You know, I think the triple seven has proven its value, but towed artillery is, you know, it, it's it's on the you know, it came out of the the force design discussions is it's a huge target. It's it's a it's a liability in some ways. Okay, well, I still need indirect fire. How do I deal with that? Well, I just got rid of these one these rifled one twenties, which by the way are different than the Army smoothbore one twenties that the U.S. already had in its inventory. Oh, and I bought a vehicle specifically to haul them on the Osprey. Um, I mean, the Marine Corps has done. I think done a very good job of testing things. I think the organizations like the Warfighting Lab are out there trying to be adaptive, right? Army has Army's Futures Command, uh, and they're out there doing that from an Army perspective too. 
but I would shy away from big glistening and, and glossy things that look really nice in, in newsprint and focus on smaller things that I can buy a lot of and I can replace because any near peer competitor fight is going to be expensive in, sure. in lives in equipment. So the Marine Corps is undertaking uh, currently a pretty dramatic um, overhaul might not even be uh, too strong a word to use, but certainly adapting um, and transforming itself in order to improve its readiness for the realities of the future operating environment um, currently or specifically under the current commandant. Um, in, you know, I guess I have kind of two questions related to that. Number one, that's been ongoing for a little while now. As you were editing the book and putting it together, was there any sense of how this how how this sort of research project that you guys are undertaking fits with that or nests within that broader context? Uh, and and two, um, I guess is it your sense that within those within the that overhaul, our amphibious operations, which have long been, like I said, um, at least part of the bread and butter of the Marine Corps, that they will be deprioritized or that, um, that, that, that the service will double down on this capability because it does clearly believe that it's, you know, going to be important for future conflicts. Yeah. I mean, I, I said earlier that when we started writing the book, General Berger wasn't the commandant. We didn't have a sense that there was going to be this shift back to the sea. You know, we'd, we'd heard it bandied about, you know, Marines are going to go, but General General Neller had talked about it, and, you know, we've been supposedly leaving Iraq and Afghanistan for, for a decade now. Um, we knew something was going to happen, but we certainly didn't think that when he released his planning guidance and then when force design, the force design documents came out, that what we were writing was so in sync with that. Um, and that was... You know, you, you, we certainly didn't think that we were being prophetic, but it was definitely a validation from an institutional perspective that we had hit the the goals and, and we had sensed without meaning to uh, where things were going. I don't know, and, and that's a, Brett and I and our peers, we grew up in Iraq and Afghanistan. We, you know, we didn't go to sea, right? I, we talked about it the other day. Um, you know, I, I had lunch with a, with a mentor of mine in his TBS class, the basic school where all the lieutenants go for six months and the warrant officers go for three or four. Um, they went to a ship. They did an amphibious exercise. And he remembered the name of it and he remembered details of it. And we didn't do that. You know, we got an extra week of counterinsurgency and urban warfare because that's the, the climate we grew up in. Um, and so to see this return to the sea going on is is exciting. It's interesting, but it also it's nothing that Brett and I have any experience in. You know, we haven't done a MU deployment. Um, there's that statement of you know the three thousand year old mind and the twenty four year old's body. I, I think you know our book's only four hundred years uh, of history, but it certainly gives us a background and an experience level that we can, we can draw on. So I think on contested shores fits into the commandant shift, totally serendipitous, but we'll take, we'll, uh, we're gonna take a little bit of credit for it. Within the Marine Corps, is there a deprioritization? Your second question? I don't think so. 
Brett would know better. He's in a lot of those rooms as a, as a proponent of his day job. And I don't know what he could say anyway, but you look at the Marine Corps Gazette, you look at articles that Marines are publishing in places like war on the rocks, um, MWI, you know, Walker Mills is prolifically publishing uh, on that sort of stuff. And it's about the transition to a littoral regiment, right? So we took third Marines, this line infantry regiment, and now have named it a littoral regiment and are testing what that means. You know, we've got a training facility down in Australia that we work with the Aussies on. Um, it's projection of power. That's that's looking to go back to the sea, right? We didn't buy the adjacent lot next to, to Fort Irwin to build another desert warfare training center. We built, you know, we, we're looking for beaches. We're looking for amphibious opportunities and partners for training. So I don't think, I don't think there's a deprioritization. Okay. Well, Tim, thank you very much for, uh, for the conversation. This has been awesome uh, for me. I think our, our, our listeners will appreciate it. Uh, for listeners that are interested in the book, um, the nice thing about publishing with Marine Corps University Press is that they'll make the PDF of the book available online. So you can find it if you search on Contested Shores. Uh, again, edited by Tim Heck and Brett Friedman. Um, it's a, it's great. I mean, I, I uh, started reading it several days ago and I thought I'm, I've got to at least kind of get through part of it. Well, you know, before we had a conversation and I honestly couldn't stop because A, I like military history, but B, it was, it was, I think you, you struck the right tone in, in terms of making it value, uh, valuable, but also accessible for people like general generalist readers, military generalist readers who don't have necessary background in amphibious operations. It's structured well the way that it kind of builds uh, with the case studies on top of, of each other before you get into um, some more concrete kind of very contemporary chapters. So I just want to say thank you again uh, for joining us and, and uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, John. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.